0: To Living Medicine, a special podcast series from the Irish Medical Organisation which explores the lives and careers of senior figures in the medical profession. My name is Priscilla Lynch and my guest today is Leash GP and Operation Transformation medical expert Dr. Sumi Dunn. Thank you for joining me today. Now, you've been based in Leash for quite some time, but uh, you're not originally from there. Can you tell me (laughs) how you came to Ireland?
1: No, I'm not, as you might figure, I'm not originally from Leash. I came to Ireland in 1999. Prior to that, I had embarked on a long-distance relationship with a gentleman from County Leash since 1994. So it was that kind of time in life where you decide either to move in together or you move on. So we moved in together in 1999. And you work as a GP in the community. I do. I'm based in Port Arlington. I'm based in a group practice in Port Arlington. Over the years, though, since the end of my GP training, I've worked in single handed practices and group practices throughout the Midlands. So I haven't just stayed in Port Arlington. So I've had the wonderful experience of traveling through the Midlands. And what attracted you to general practice as a career? I think it was the totality of being able to practice in an environment where you saw everyone. Uh, and especially, there's a charm in rural Ireland that you don't always see anywhere else. Certainly, I wouldn't have witnessed it coming from London. And over the years, that consolidated my interest to say I didn't want to remain siloed in one particular aspect of care. And that very much I enjoyed looking after a sector of society, the typical cradle to grave relationship. And what gives you the most job satisfaction? Just recently, a patient came back and they were just talking in general. And at the end, they just stopped and said, the real reason I'm here is just to say thank you. Something very simple like that gives you a huge amount of validation and a great amount of satisfaction in your job. It may not be for anything specific, but it's quite often when you know that rapport has been built with your patient. And what's the most difficult part of your job? I think, you know, like a lot of my colleagues, At the moment, we are so caught with resources and entrance for our patients into the hospital system. Continually at the moment, there seems to be a constant backflow with letters back to say they either need to be revalidated or we don't have access to services, or my patients are being rerouted to other services, making it very difficult at point of delivery of care for us in general practice, when there is an expectation from our patient body that we can do this for them, but yet it's very difficult for us to get access into the services. I think a classic one at the moment is the local ophthalmology services, where there is no provision at the moment and the wait list is four years. For children that may have a squint or other issues that have been picked up by community screening.
0: There are a number of challenges in general practice. You've alluded to some of them there, resources being one. Mm. And I suppose as well, getting a locum is actually a very difficult thing for many GPs.
1: It is. I mean, that is a particular challenge that we see in rural general practice. We have a member of staff going on maternity leave within the foreseeable future. And we do know that we won't be able to get a locum for them interestingly we also had two members of staff out on maternity leave in the last 18 months And we also didn't get locums for them. So the rest of us had to change our workload and incorporate the patient population for that. So that then leads to longer wait times to see us. On some instances, we were unable to offer same-day services. However, the locum cover wasn't there. And that's something we're really cognizant of. And that was part my decision to come and work in a group practice moving forward, knowing the challenges that my rural colleagues in single-handed practices do face on an ongoing basis. From just what you
0: said there, that is one of the big issues for women in medicine in Ireland today, particularly in general practice, Mm -hmm. maternity leave and trying to get time off and family flexible working. That's often what attracts females to general practice in the first place, but it seems like that actually that seems to be
1: the opposite of general practice today. It's a changing environment for younger women coming into general practice and having a family and trying to get maternity leave whilst you're in a small business isn't always you know practical or possible. Of course you know all general practitioner principles will look after employees in appropriate circumstances but maternity pay as, as is known if you were working in a bigger sector as per the HSC isn't always possible and certainly not doable in the small business environment. So I think that's very difficult for our younger GPs coming into practice also to take the extended maternity maternity leave can have a huge impact on practices moving forward so it isn't as easy if anything we're seeing that a lot of our trainees are finding this a challenge and as a result are choosing not to come into general practice full-time.
0: And what would you say to young GPs today or indeed trainee doctors who are thinking of going into general practice?
1: I wouldn't let this put them off coming into general practice at all it's still a phenomenal career And there is so much satisfaction from that, you know, and to be a GP is so rewarding. I would very much advocate for anyone that is considering general practice to come into it and certainly not to give up on us (laughs) at the initial onset. Yes, there are challenges, no different to any other challenges that we're facing in the sector of, of health. And I think that we can see that within the hospital sectors as well. Recruitment, retention is across the board. It's not just siloed to general practice.
0: Do you think though, that general practice is taken for granted both by perhaps your hospital colleagues and by the government?
1: I think we are a unique setting and I think for the moment in the majority of still being able to see our patients very quickly is, you know, a it's a privilege for both the patient and also the demands that are placed on us. When I look to the United Kingdom, where my parents have been from, to ring to see a GP, they're waiting at least three to four weeks, unless they are an absolute emergency, in which case they're then sidelined to the emergency services. So the fact that most of our patients can get in within 24 to 48 hours, I know there are more challenges and now patients in the current climate are being asked to wait for a week, if not two weeks. That's only going to change if our landscape isn't addressed appropriately.
0: And do you think that GPs work well enough with other members of the primary care team, with pharmacies, with nurses? Or do you think there's more that could be done perhaps both to ease the burden on general practitioners and perhaps to share the amount of care that the government wants to deliver in primary care?
1: I think, you know, at the moment, we work very well, you know, in a totality. There is more support that can be given how we go about addressing that support without putting more work focus on general practice is the challenge and how that integration is probably a work in progress at present. I think there are lots of interesting projects that can be looked at to try and minimise the amount of time that patients have to wait to see their GP. Everyone is entitled to see a GP and should have access when it is possible. The challenges that we see at the moment are to do with the fact there is not enough of us on the ground to cover the increasing demands of health. And what
0: services would you like to see delivered in general practice perhaps that there
1: isn't currently the resources to do? I'd like to see more of a totality around the mental health services. That's a particular challenge that we see in rural Ireland and timely access to that. We are privileged, where I am, that we do have a scan nurse who will see emergency appointments for us, and those are for patients with objective suicide ideation that aren't actively suicidal within a very short time frame, and in our particular practice, they actually come in to see the patients on site. However, that's not a universal aspect or that's apparent around all practices in the area. We find our challenges around the child and mental health services. Again, that's with no fault to our colleagues working in the services. It is the number of consultants and practitioners available to see the referrals that are being made from general practice.
0: And telemedicine is something that people are increasingly using um, to access GP services. A lot of them have sprung up in Ireland in recent years. What are your thoughts on, I suppose, the pros and cons of telemedicine?
1: There are there are certainly pros. Uh, I think there are more cons. I think in general practice, having a patient face to face, being able to take a history and undertake a clinical examination, can't be you know undermined in any way, shape or form. Certainly, there are certain aspects of telemedicine which I would urge caution at, and that in the immediate sense would be to think about pediatrics or small children. All small children should be examined by an experienced GP. And no prescription should ever be given to a child without examination. I think there was a prime example that trended on Twitter, where a prescription was given to a very young child based on a tele-video consult with a parent.
0: Antibiotic stewardship is another issue, I suppose, really, that's, again, seen as largely the preserve of general practitioners um, to try and temper patient expectations. Again, how do you think that is coming out of the winter now, especially when there's a lot of demand on GPs to prescribe antibiotics?
1: I think we're doing, overall, uh, in general practice, we certainly have taken on stewardship rigorously and vigorously and using patient education as as a very robust tool in which to identify what are viral illnesses. There are expectations, and together with that, the use of holding scripts has become an invaluable tool for us as well. Interestingly, the BMJ had an article out around antibiotic stewardship to say that there was a 13% decrease in the amount of antibiotics prescribed with no increase in serious complications, and that was seen in the United Kingdom. So that's a very valuable mechanism for us to take on board to say the stewardship is working continue with patient education at every opportunity.
0: The state is always trying to save money understandably on the medicines bill and GPs are given directives on really what is the, the medicine of choice that they should prescribe. I suppose sometimes there's a bit of tension on whether GP should be allowed to be more independent in their choice of particular medicines. Do you have any thoughts on that area?
1: It is. Sometimes it's a challenge. I mean, One particular challenge that comes to mind is Roaccutane uh, and looking at the prescribing of that in general practice. Again, given the challenges of the number of dermatology consultants that we have access to for our PCRS patients, there is leeway, there are guidelines to feel that if you feel that you are able to prescribe Roaccutane, that is possible. However, again, the challenges come around the monitoring and the delivery of such a service which isn't currently resourced in the contract in general practice.
0: The HSE has a significant medicine spill and they do ask GPs to prescribe certain medications to try and reduce costs. Is there more that GPs can do?
1: Certainly, I think, you know, when we look at a particular dermatology cases with severe acne, we are caught in what we can prescribe. And at the moment, the directive is to come through specialist care only or if the GP feels that they're a specialist in the area, that they can go ahead and prescribe what would be a drug that would require further monitoring. The difficulty is is the resourcing and the continual monitoring of same within general practice without the backup and the facilities.
0: And do you think GPs have taken on the prescribing of generics perhaps enough? And there's other advice perhaps that GPs could perhaps give the HSE in relation to the drugs bill?
1: We have. I think, you know, broadly speaking, general practice has embraced generic prescribing. Sometimes our difficulty comes when the scripts that are issued from a different authority come with branded names and the expectation then is from the patient to provide the branded name.
0: Often when there's a crisis in the health service, we hear, ring your GP. But often the GP hasn't been contacted by the HSE itself. Is there, you know, scope for more information sharing between the HSE and GPs in relation to these issues? And perhaps should they say not to call the GP necessarily in some situations?
1: I think communication between all departments is always going to be worthy. Sometimes communication can fall and the first that we hear of it is on social media. Classically around the first announcement of the under sixes and to go for scrapes, cuts and bruises, which was quickly rescinded from what I recall. Absolutely. If there is a facilitative way in that we can improve communication skills from the higher authorities, I think general practice will embrace that and take that on board.
0: We live in an age of Dr. Google. Do you think GPs really are prepared enough for dealing with expectations from patients about what Dr. Google has said? Because really they're often the very first doctors um, that patients will go to with what they've downloaded from the internet.
1: That makes it for a very challenging consultation and quite often we have to come back to the core principles that any physician would undertake of history examination uh, together with requisite tests. And if they don't fall in the remit of Dr. Google to address the patient concerns of why they aren't. Most patients are very appreciative of when their concerns and their expectations are addressed, even if Dr. Google has come with whole body CT scans, etc.
0: So GPs are seen as one of the most trustworthy professions in relation to information. So obviously patients trust very much what GPs and other practice staff tell them. So That's a role that you don't wear lightly, but is there more perhaps that could be done really, I suppose, in supporting GPs to provide such information to patients?
1: It's become increasingly more challenging with the background of social media that patients very much want their information at their fingertips and their access. We are finding that patient information leaflets are now a thing of the past. If anything, we are directing them to reputable websites, either through the HSC, the Medicines Board, or My Options websites. So as long as our patients are going through reputable sources, then I think we are encouraging that. I also have to be aware that in rural Ireland, carrying a patient information leaflet can be seen as stigmatising. So a lot of our patients choose not to carry that and will actually ask for web links or web addresses.
0: In line with that, an electronic healthcare record is something that Ireland lags far behind our European neighbours with, and in particular in general practice. General practice is independent from the hospital system in relation to the computer systems they have. So a lot needs to
1: change really there, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, a cohesion of linking of records would make a lot of ease in general practice, especially when we look at chronic disease management and medicines changing uh, and those patients that have to be you know, taken from one discipline to another and coming back to general practice. If there is anything that would make that easier, I think we would all universally embrace that.
0: GPs have reacted favourably to HealthLink and HealthMail and e-referrals in general. Mm -hmm. Um, But still, we live in an age where GPs are swamped with paperwork and letters constantly from the HSE and from the public asking them to do things. So again, is there much more needs to be done really to address this?
1: I think we can. I mean, we're moving in such a world that we can make changes. Again, where and how and whom to facilitate is the bigger question. But certainly ease of using our media and using our e-health records would be of much value.
0: Doctors across specialties complain that in today's medicine, a lot of their time is taken up with unnecessary paperwork and administration and dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Again, that needs to change to allow doctors to do what they do best and what they should be doing, delivering medicine.
1: Absolutely. Without a doubt. One of the most frustrating aspects, uh, which I regularly tweet about, is the requirement of a stronger letter for a letter that's already been sent which outlines a very detailed examination and a history and relevant investigations. Very frustrating, more waste of time, use of another appointment and the knock-on effect that it has through the working week. Certainly, if that could be looked at to eliminate same, we would make a very small step and a very progressive one.
0: GPs in particular are known for strong patient advocacy. That's something that you yourself are involved with and you're also quite a strong advocate for your colleagues. Can you tell us a bit more about that work?
1: So I've been involved in a number of projects with very, you know, excellent colleagues. It's been a privilege over the years. We have looked at supporting minority groups over the years. We've looked at supporting marginalized communities. We've certainly looked at advocacy for those uh, patients that are in rural Ireland with specifics around sexual health and teen health. Without the input of colleagues, it would be an impossible task. And we hope to continue with the work in the future.
0: So you agree that patient advocacy is a key part of being a general practitioner? Absolutely.
1: Together with the pillars of ethics, being a patient advocate is part of the reason that keeps me in general practice.
0: And we've talked about communication and how important that is. I suppose getting the key message out about what GPs actually do and the challenges they actually face is very important. And no one can say that better than GPs themselves. Mm -hmm. So you've written a bit about that and you've spoken out in the media as well in support of your profession.
1: I would still say you know being a GP is the most rewarding career that we can undertake. I think also we need to highlight the difficulties that general practice face. Certainly, I would also highlight on a regular basis the difficulties in undertaking house calls in the middle of a busy day, where there is at present no remuneration for it, and taking time away from a very busy surgery. And to come back to that, again, the impact overall is not to deliver a suboptimal service, but to make sure that all patients are getting equitable care it's very difficult to continue with such a service when the demands of people coming in are overwhelming.
0: Patients are very appreciative of what their GP does for them generally do you find?
1: Absolutely on a regular basis we are thanked for what we may just consider everyday tasks and that again is incredibly satisfying.
0: You've become quite well known in the last few months because of your role on Operation Transformation and RTE. So what really attracted you to working in the media as a media doctor?
1: I had done a few items through some small radio aspects and also a few pieces for the newspaper. I had heard that the position was becoming available. And I guess you get to a stage where if you don't do it, then you never will. It was, again, it was a few colleagues that encouraged and supported me in this particular journey. So I was delighted to undertake it. was surprised when I was chosen. I think everyone generally is when they initially go for something that is a little bit outside their comfort zone but have been very encouraged by the response that the programme overall has had and the response to the fantastic people that were involved in it this year.
0: In that particular role, do you think that one of the advantages is you're reaching so many people and talking about their health and perhaps getting across messages to them that they will look into their own health after seeing you speaking to the contestants on the show?
1: Absolutely. I think as a public health initiative, we can't undermine the value of a program like this and the far-reaching benefits to the community at large. And the fact that it's so translatable, that there are very real people who have given up their jobs and their work and their time, and sometimes even family time, in order to come and have an improvement on health. And certainly this year, what was highlighted is that all normalisation of society was seen. We had a particularly challenging gentleman who embraced the change in lifestyle, having had a background of type 2 diabetes and being medically monitored with that, which then shows a big sector of the community, well, this is actually doable. Uh, And the final results were quite astonishing for both himself and ourselves and his colleagues in general practice
0: that program was a great example of the benefits of lifestyle interventions patients often want really a tablet that they can take really to address their health problems but often it is lifestyle interventions like losing weight exercise a healthy diet but that is something sometimes it's very difficult for gps to get across and to
1: prescribe it's a really difficult message and uh, we see that daily i think there wouldn't be a gp in ireland that doesn't see that daily The difficulties we have, we are time pressed. To engage in these type of consultations takes time and it also takes some shared understanding between the patient and the doctor as to the benefits of it. And the other thing is, is that quite often you're operating in a time or an expectation for a patient that they need a return to work or they need some other expectation, which they find very difficult to see that the process is long, it's drawn out and it may take more input from themselves. What we can do is support them through it. What we don't always have is the time, uh, which again comes back to the resourcing uh, and the retention issue in general practice.
0: Did you get great satisfaction, though, from the programme, from seeing the
1: benefits to the participants at the end of the programme? It was, it was like being a proud mother. <laughs> and the nurturing aspect because for the duration of the programme these uh, the the leaders all became patients of mine and I'd like to think that as I meet my patients in the community they were treated with the same empathy and dignity that I would to my own patients.
0: And what would you like to see come from the programme perhaps in relation to patient health initiatives that could come from it?
1: I think ongoing sustainability around weight loss, diet and lifestyle change is an important one on a background of saying that this doesn't have to cost money. I think a challenge for lifestyle change is the assumption that it will put you out of pocket and the programme has exemplified that all of this can be relatively cost neutral.
0: So do you hope to see patients coming into you in practice and to other GPs across the country maybe looking for support in lifestyle intervention?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And if we're and, and that is a very important part of general practice is health promotion within society, not just diagnostics and prescribing.
0: And that again is something I suppose that GPs sometimes feel that isn't emphasized enough either in their training, at medical school and in their day to day work.
1: Certainly we're becoming more aware of it and working in a medical school it's something that we are addressing in terms of our student body at present, so they are very aware of lifestyle change and impact on health behaviour and attitudes. It is very interesting when you step outside that sphere of television and you take it back down to general practice to try and bring this message back to a one-to-one individual consult. It is a challenge, I'm not going to dilute from that, but we can only give people the tools and also teach our new generation of the improvements that can be made with lifestyle change. Do
0: you think, though, it's important that GPs and other healthcare practitioners are the sources of information that we see being promoted on programmes and in articles? Because in recent years, there's been an explosion of healthcare gurus and nutritionists and other new age practitioners who are very keen to promote their particular health messages that aren't evidence-based.
1: I would be very wary of a practitioner that wasn't evidence based and not registered. And my own practice is to counsel my own patients when they do come in with recommendations from other new age health practitioners to ask my patients have they checked whether the particular practitioner is registered to an affiliate council and whether the practice is evidence based. And interestingly, With those two questions, quite a lot of my patients will start to re-evaluate their own belief systems around that. I think it's very important, especially where doctors are identified, certainly here in the Republic of Ireland and in the United Kingdom, through the Medical Council. We also have the Nursing Council and our Chartered Physiotherapists, that our patients are aware that their health information is coming from a reputable evidence-based link That's not to say they can explore other ideas, but we may not be able or we shouldn't be able to back that up.
0: One of the areas where alternative practitioners have had perhaps a very negative impact has been on cancer patients Mm. and also in the areas of vaccination. And really, there has been issues there with vaccination uptake rates and patients perhaps turning away from traditional medicine in relation to cancer and looking at alternative treatments. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Myself and a few others were involved in the shutting down of a Twitter site from a health practitioner that claimed that changes to diet could cure cancer, and luckily that web link and that particular Twitter account have been modified. In one instance, the actual page was deleted. That's a very important message to promote, to say that, you know, if reputable practitioners are questioning this then there must be a reason behind that. The WHO has come out to say that the anti-vaccine or or the anti-vax crowd are possibly one of the biggest detriments to health at present and that's a very powerful message to see. I and a lot of practitioners would be of the belief and again I would regularly say vaccines work And I will continue to say vaccines work. And do you think then that GPs
0: and other healthcare professionals should come out and promote vaccination and other areas that are under attack, really, from, as you've said, social media and alternative practitioners and people who are trying to plant out? Because HPV vaccination rates declined significantly in Ireland um, in recent years because of scares uh, that were unfounded, but have recovered again
1: when healthcare professionals came together. Absolutely. It was very interesting to see the social media around the HPV vaccination and also champions in society that weren't necessarily healthcare practitioners promoting the HPV vaccine. Any GP practice would carry on promoting vaccines. Certainly our allied healthcare professionals would do the same together with our colleagues in the hospital services. So I think patients are hearing a universal message from their reputable healthcare practitioners. And I don't think any other practitioner is saying any different.
0: What advice would you give to doctors
1: considering perhaps taking on more media work? Do it. It's very enjoyable. But work within your comfort zone. I wouldn't be able to do Dancing with the Stars.
0: (laughs) Now, if you were choosing your career path in medicine again today, would you choose the same path?
1: I would, I would. I thoroughly enjoy being a GP. I had a background in paediatrics, which I also loved. I did leave it with regret. But now standing back and being in general practice for the length of time that I'm in, I don't think I would change it at all. I have the best of both worlds, and I'm very privileged for that, in that I get to teach within a medical school, and I also get to be involved in clinical practice. So that encompasses both my passions of medical education together with clinical practice.
0: Healthcare practitioners are often accused of working in silos and we hear a lot more about the emphasis on multidisciplinary teams so general practice and other specialties really are changing Mm. and the scope of practice for nurses and for pharmacists is changing too so obviously this is a challenge but it brings many benefits.
1: It does indeed, and in integral working amongst our professions will be key moving forward. How we do that to improve access has to be done in a thought-out manner with the appropriate resourcing and can't just be dictated from a particular body.
0: Irish GPs are in demand worldwide, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the Middle East, um, we're, you're seen as very well trained and very well educated. So the world is your oyster. Um, do you have any advice to GPs who are thinking of going abroad or is there anything that we can do to perhaps entice them back?
1: Enticing them back is the key and not losing them in the first place is pivotal. We need to stop and we need to really take check of the fact that why are we losing such good graduates who are so highly trained with a robust mechanism to the Sonia Climes? And that's a question that we need to throw out there and we need to say, why are we losing our best?
0: Are there other areas of general practice that you'd like to be better trained in and perhaps that you think should be changed to accommodate the the changing needs of patients?
1: Certainly in the UK there are GPs with special interests, they're known as gypsies. I would very much like to keep my paediatric training involved and continue with that in general practice. It's certainly known within our practice that I have a paediatric background so most of the more challenging cases do come via myself. Which is great, it's very rewarding but I wouldn't like to lose those skills over the years and it would be you know, facilitative if there was the appropriate training to remain skills based in that for the betterment of the community.
0: There are societies that have sprung up, uh, set up by GPs themselves who have a specialist interest in certain areas, dermatology, respiratory respiratory medicine um, comes to mind so obviously there should be an ability there for GPs to practice again in their subspecialty as well.
1: Absolutely, I think the difficulty comes and going back to where you alluded to locum cover is to be able to take the time to go and remain skills trained without losing to the detriment of the practice or the amount of patients that are coming in and that's the ongoing challenge that we have we're incredibly interested uh, do we have the time to leave the practice and go and do we have the locum cover
0: would you like to become help minister if the opportunity ever arose uh, thank you but no <laughs> Do you think there's enough knowledge
1: perhaps among policymakers about what GPs actually do and what you bring to the table? Possibly not. There is a disconnect at times and there are other times where there is a full understanding. Do you think GPs should be more
0: involved and more representative on national bodies and national councils such as the HSE
1: Board, the Slainte Care Council? Well, it was interesting that not a single GP was appointed to the recent HSE Board it it would be great I think there are a lot of us that would like to become involved but again at what cost certainly our primary goal and our pivotal goal is always to remain patient-centered and in the absence of being able to provide a service back to the patients it would be very difficult to get involved at a higher level
0: Minor surgery is another area that many GPs would like to get more involved with. There has been some very successful pilots, but again, it's about resourcing. Mm-hmm. Is it
1: something you think that GPs should try and take on? Again, if the resources are adequate and the demand for time wasn't so pressing, absolutely. But I think, again, a lot of GPs, if we looked at single-handed practices, that would almost be an impossible task unless dedicated time was put aside and the resources were adequate for same.
0: Some emergency departments have started hiring GPs to work there and to help triage patients. Do you think that's a a benefit for patients?
1: Absolutely, because it would feed in with an education model to say, should this arise in the future, I possibly don't need to attend the A&E and I might be able to attend my GP if my GP has the special interest in this.
0: So in summary, general practice is a very rewarding career with many challenges, but it's something that you're glad you've undertaken.
1: Oh, 100%. I would do this all again in the morning. It's a changed landscape to when I first graduated back in 2006 to where it is now. So we're talking 13 years later. It has become increasingly more difficult. Certainly looking from going from being employed into a large group practice and looking at the business aspects, no one had trained us for that. And that has become something to learn on the job. But in terms of rewards, in terms of satisfaction, in terms of wanting to go to work every day, that hasn't changed. And for the foreseeable future, I don't think it will change.
0: My name is Priscilla Lynch, and I want to thank our guest, Dr. Sumi Dunn, for spending time with us and to each of you for listening. Living Medicine will be back soon on your favourite podcast platform.